Let me warn the listener about today's episode. Today we're going to be talking about spiritual trauma. We're going to be talking about spiritual abuse. I also am assuming that there may be parts of explicit language. So may I make a few suggestions? One would be obviously keep kids as far away from this episode as possible. Please. The second would be not to listen to this episode alone. And, and if I can just beg you as the listener, if, if you would please get, get somebody you love who loves you for who you are and listen to this episode with them. If you have somebody who understands your faith transition, listen to this episode with them. I don't care if this episode only gets seven downloads because you people couldn't find someone else to listen to it with. But please, by all means, do not listen to this episode by yourself. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real, and I'm grateful to, to be with you today. This has been a really strange week, and and I hope you'll listen to this whole thing. And, I, and again, as, as the intro said, I hope you're not listening to it alone. And I, and I hope you keep kids away from the audio because I I don't know where it's going to go today. I, I've been, my mind's been on a lot of things, one of which was the Our Bad Days episode we did several years ago, where I just shared like what one of my really bad days looks like. And I feel like we're back in that space again. I should, uh, I should back up a little bit and, and tell you about two Sundays ago, which I think is where this all kind of began to, to kind of stew within me. And so two Sundays ago, I'm in priesthood and the, the teacher who is a man I love in our ward, he has, he has always been kind and soft to me. And the lesson is on the first vision and he, he talks about this new video, which incorporates the multiple accounts that we have heard of. And he, and he says it in a way that he's saying like, this is something we've learned relatively recently. And here's a new video that kind of encompasses them. And before he shows the video, a gentleman in the back of the room raises his hand and says, uh, there's a lot of people out there struggling with these, these, these four accounts. Uh, I assume that's why we're showing the video today. There's a lot of people out there struggling over these accounts. And somebody in the class, I don't remember exactly how it went, but somebody in the class made a comment about, about these accounts. And it just, it just like, it rubbed me. There was, there was some tension. There was some friction there in whatever that comment was. And so I've gotten to the point where in my dis in my discomfort i'm going to raise my hand and i'm going to speak up 
and I'm going to, from now on, like, I have a truth, and I'm going to try to be respectful, and I'm not just going to throw shit against the wall. I'm going to try and be respectful, but I'm going to say my truth. And so I raised my hand. And I said, the reason people struggle with this first vision is because they are just now learning about these four accounts. These four accounts have been around for a long, long time. The first one was written in 1832. It's written in Joseph's own personal journal. The problem with this account is nobody knew about it. Do you know why? Because Joseph Fielding Smith, future prophet of the church in 1921, was called as the church historian. And he took that 1832 account when he found it, and he cut it out of Joseph's journal and hid it away in the church history vault. And it didn't come forward until the 1960s. I said the reason people struggle with the first vision is because the church's narrative on that story is changing. And people are reading the 1832 account and they're realizing that there are contradictions between the 32 account and the 1838 official account. And they're trying to reconcile that. And some of them can't. And the room got quiet. The room got quiet. And he shows the video, and somebody else makes a comment, and I raise my hand again. And and this is me trying to trying to like just nudge them and saying, like, look, I'm willing to pose this faithfully. And so I say, look, there there are ways that people reconcile these accounts. There's there's conversations to be had around memory and how we sometimes build false memories. There's conversations to be had about audiences and how we choose to say things to various audiences. But I think as a church, we have to begin wrestling with the 1832 account and be open to the possibility that it is the more valid spiritual experience. And that class came to a close. And so I go throughout my week and my week is just another week, man. I'm at work and, and, and I'm loving my job and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm doing church stuff because of the podcast and social media. And then a couple days ago, I sit down here early at work and I record two episodes. One is on the boundaries in Mormonism. And I use the example, I use the example of, um, a bishop interviewing a 12-year-old girl behind closed doors and at times these conversations revolving around things of a sexual nature. And I realize that Mormonism, and again, let me say, like Mormonism has so many beautiful parts, things I love, things that have made me a better human being. But Mormonism also has a lot of dark, dark places. Dark places and dark places we can't talk about. And so I do that episode, and I also record an episode on how past leaders on a multitude of occasions spoke of 
those of, of color, of less intelligence, of being born in certain places in the world, people with physical handicaps, that those folks were less valiant in the pre-mortal life. Like we used to teach that. And I did an episode on that. And, and you begin to see like the really dark places in Mormonism. And I should back up a few days. This last Sunday, this last Sunday was like this traumatic experience. I'm in priesthood again. The teacher is a, again, a, a nice guy, soft man. And the topic is out of the Gordon B. Hinckley manual and it's the lesson on testimony. And, and as they're talking about testimony, he makes the comment that there are lots of our, our younger people in the church right now who are struggling with their testimonies. And he said, why is that? And somebody in the class raised their hand and said something like alternative voices and made a comment that, that members of the church, these younger members, they're, they're listening to all these other voices outside the church. And that listening to those voices is the reason they're losing their testimony. They're not staying solid in the church. And again, like my body said, this is, this is not good. This is not right. And I could feel like, like you guys don't, I know you guys, you guys sense, right? Like, like I'm well read. And I'm well informed and I know how I want to word things and, and I know the way in which I want to say it and I can say it soft enough and yet I can also say it hard enough that it gets through. And yet in that moment, my body said, you're not going to be able to talk to these people. You can't tell them your truth. But I knew that I couldn't leave it unsaid. And so I raised my hand and the teacher called on me and I said, I have to give a different perspective and I don't mean to make all of you uncomfortable. But the reason that the younger folks are losing their testimony is because we live in an information age. And the story our church has told us, it isn't accurate. And our, the narrative of our church is changing. I said, imagine being one of these youth and you grow up thinking that the book of Abraham was translated from some Egyptian papyri. Well, guess what, brother, brethren? That's not the case anymore. We no longer know how Joseph translated the book of Abraham. Imagine growing up. In fact, I, I suppose everyone in this room, none of you knew about seer stones until a short time ago. Each of you grew up with the story that Joseph used the Nephite spectacles, but we're going to have to grow comfortable, brethren, with a seer stone and a hat being the translation method that the 531 pages we have today was translated with. I said the reason these younger folks are losing their testimony is because the story they were told doesn't hold up. And we are building a new narrative, and that narrative is on the LDS.org gospel topic essays. And I would encourage everyone in this room to go read them. And the teacher, the teacher then sensed, right, that I've just sucked the wind out of the room 
by sharing a narrative that's very different than their narrative. And he went on to make a comment about, we do live in an information age. And he thanked me for what I said. And, and, and he was being sincere. Like there was a softness to how he was approaching me. But he said, it is an information age and there's lots of critical material out there. And a lot of it isn't true. And, and I raised my hand again. I shot it up in the air and he, and he called on me. Thank you for calling on me. He called on me because sometimes in our classes, they don't call on you. They know that your truth runs counter to theirs and they don't call on you. But he did. God bless him. He did. And I said, I'm going to have to rephrase what you just said from my perspective. The facts that the critics claim. We agree now that these are the facts. We can no longer dismiss those as anti-Mormon lies. We can debate the context in which these facts should be in, and we can debate the conclusions drawn from them. But the anti-Mormon lies of 25 years ago are now the facts on the LDS.org essays. And what you don't understand, you guys, if you would have been sitting next to me in this class, like my hands were shaking, I couldn't catch my breath. I couldn't say these sentences comfortably. Everyone in the room could sense how nervous and how um, how much out of place it was for me to, like, say these things. And not out of place like, Bill Real never says stuff like that, but rather like it's taking him, it's really taking a toll on him to give a voice to this. And I said it and in the rest of class, my hands were just shaking and my, my breathing was off and I could tell like, Bill, you're having something that resembles an anxiety attack. And And yet I am so confident. Like, this is what I do every week. This is what I do on the podcast. This is what I do at Firesides. This is what I do when I give presentations at Sunstone. Like, this is no big deal to raise my hand and to speak my truth. And yet in this class, in this moment, I realize, wow, there is a lot. There's a lot of things in this room that are designed to keep you from saying your truth. And and I just want to stop here for a moment and say this. If that's the experience I have, when this is really my skill set to speak up in public and to say hard things, then I just want to say like my heart, my heart goes out to you. My heart goes out to you because I get messages from you when you say, like, I can't do that, Bill. I can't raise my hand. I can't say something. It's too hard. And I just want to say, like, like I, I used to kind of get it, and now I get it. Like, I get it. I understand it fully. And so now we fast forward to yesterday. And yesterday is... No big deal. I'm, I'm working on editing the Mormon primer with, with your guys' help. 
And, and as I'm editing it and working on it, that's fine. I, I recorded an episode in the morning regarding the, the Mormon primer document and the struggle is real audio. And the day goes fine. Work is, work is fine. Work is good. And I get in my car at the end of the day and, and I'm just, I love podcasts. I mean, I get it. Like, right. I record a podcast, but no, I love podcast. I love listening to podcast. And, and one of them that I have in my iTunes library is the liturgist podcast. And if you haven't listened to liturgist podcast, it is a progressive Christian podcast that speaks to the same issues that we are talking about here in Mormonism. And a new episode popped up, and it was titled Spiritual Trauma. And I thought, ah, do I want to do this today? I said, yeah, you know what, I'm in a good mood, let's do it. Let's listen to it. And so I, I push play. I push play and I listen and and I'm not more than 10 minutes in when I start crying. When I start bawling on my drive home, like I am in tears. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to like put words to my emotion. And I'm pretty good at kind of getting outside my own head a little bit and and kind of being aware of what this looks like from outside myself, and then also kind of being aware within myself of what what my body's telling me. And I'm trying to put words to this experience. And I'm listening to this episode on spiritual trauma, and it hits me. It hits me. Because in this episode, it starts off with a few really quick 30-second blips of spiritual trauma occurring in other faiths and congregations. And I'm, and I'm listening to this and I'm, and I'm realizing like, like it's hitting me like a ton of bricks. Spiritual trauma has occurred here. I have experienced spiritual trauma and spiritual abuse at the hands of Mormonism. And you have experienced spiritual trauma and spiritual abuse at the hands of Mormonism. And, and as I, as I made that connection, I made that connection. I was able to like just say it for the first time in my life. And, and then suddenly it hit me how that expressed itself in my life, in our church, the mechanisms in place from the top down, from the top 15 men to the local members of the church, the mechanism in place is to tell my story and to tell your story, to tell my truth in their way for them to redefine my truth and for them to redefine your truth week in and week out and every six months at conference 
and every six months at state conference, and every year at ward conference, and every Sunday in Sunday school, and every Sunday in priesthood and relief society, and every week in young men's and young women's, we tell, we teach, we impose, we instruct that there are people who leave our faith and they leave because they're less faithful. They leave because they don't read the Book of Mormon enough. They leave because they weren't strong enough. They leave because they wanted to sin. They leave because they are not as good as us. And that is bullshit. Clearly bullshit. I busted my ass in this church. From the time I joined at 17, all I did was serve in leadership callings. At the age of 29, I was called to serve as a bishop, and I busted my ass as a bishop. You go to any single member of my ward, and you say, how was Bill real as a bishop? And they will say, as a bishop, that man was awesome. That man served us. That man loved us. He had compassion and empathy. I served my tail end off in callings. I went to every meeting. I got up early for church. I did my home teaching. You want to talk about where the hypocrites are? They're the ones who tell my truth. And I'm pissed. Because that's what happens. They tell your story. And it's their way of staying comfortable. It's their way of not having to deal with the reality. But the reality is this. I read more than you. I I took this thing more serious than you. I busted my ass in this thing. I took it for exactly what it claimed to be. And I did exactly what they asked me to do. I showed up for everything. If somebody was moving in our ward, I showed up. I was one of the folks who were there, and I was happy to be there. When anything was going on, if there was a meeting, if there was something going on at a conference, if there was a need to be at a open house, if there was something going on in my ward and some kind of help or assistance was needed, I was there. I showed up. I was one of the few people who showed up for almost everything. I was all in, both feet, sleeves rolled up, and I was present. If there was a meeting to be at a hour and 15 minutes away at some other stake, then I was there. If there was a need to be at our stake center for something to do with stake conference, to help park cars, to help, to help people find seats, whatever it was, I was there. I was all in. I was Mormon to the core. I had read the Book of Mormon multitudes of times. I didn't go through it once. I didn't read it twice. I didn't read it four or five times. I've gone through it a multitude of times. No one can tell me I didn't read the scriptures enough. I've read the DNC all the way through. I'd read the Old Testament all the way through multiple times. I'd read the New Testament all the way through multitude of times. I read the the lessons before they were taught on Sunday. I taught tons of lessons. I gave, man, I, I gave my 
absolute blood, sweat, and tears to this thing. How dare you tell my story? How dare you decide what my truth is? And here's the problem. They tell your truth, but they do not, do not want to give any safe space for you to tell your own story. And that, my friends, is spiritual abuse. And what you and I have felt is spiritual trauma. When you are in a community that if you don't fit in, they tell your story inaccurately and give you no space to tell your story, that is unhealthy. And I'm calling it for what it is. And this bullshit has to stop. It has to stop. The people who are losing their faith are the ones who took Mormonism the most seriously. They are the ones who are the most read. They are the ones who are the most informed. And for the member of the church who wants to come to me and say like, Bill, you're, you just weren't faithful enough. And for the people who left, they just didn't read enough and pray enough and fast enough. Bullshit. I've sat with people who prayed and fasted and read until they were exhausted searching for answers from God to help put this back together. These people wanted nothing more than the church to be true. Nothing more than that. They didn't, they weren't looking for a reason to leave. They were begging for reasons to stay. You no longer get to tell my story and I will not let them any longer tell your story. Today it ends. If my hands shake, if I lose my breath, if my arms go numb, which they did yesterday, I sat in my bed and I cried and thank goodness, thank goodness I reached out to three friends, two of which live nearby and one of which lives a ways away. And and they said, like, immediately, we're dropping what we're doing, we're coming over. And they walked in my door, and this wonderful woman just immediately ran to me and hugged me. And I just sat there for three minutes just hugging and embracing her and letting her share in the burden of this spiritual trauma and abuse that happens in our community. Last night in the midst of this, I reached out to two members of my ward. These members, they're not, they're not in the same place that I am. But they have empathy and love and concern and have always been kind to me. I sent them a message. Here's what I said. I said, I hope you don't mind me messaging the two of you. You're the only two people in the ward who I felt real, serious empathy from. I just want to say thank you. Today has been kind of tough. I'm going to try and put my thoughts into words, and I hope that on some level you can understand. 
I spend a lot of time helping those who are losing faith in our community. They hurt, and they don't feel heard. I say this in all soberness. On my drive home, I ended up in tears. They have endured spiritual abuse at the hands of our tribe. I have endured spiritual abuse at the hands of my tribe. It just hit hard today. When I see someone in angst, I run to them. When I see someone on the margins of our faith, I can't not go to them and sit with them and try to meet them where they are. When my brothers and sisters in my ward see me in angst, they run away. No one wants to talk. No one wants to understand me. No one wants to ask why I hurt. In regards to those of our faith who have left or have serious doubts, ward members want. No, in fact, they need to tell the story of those who left or lost faith. But they absolutely can't make space for those folks to tell their own story, to be heard where they are. Today is hard. Sunday was hard. I just want to be heard and understood. I just want my ward members, especially my quorum brethren, to understand me and those on the margins where we are. I felt you two were the safest people in the ward to reach out to. That's my message to them. And I don't know what to do. Like, like, how do I? Because, because it's one thing when other people are going through this, when you folks reach out to me or my friends who live, who live just a short ways from my house. Like when we get together and we're like, man, this is just messy. None of us signed up for this. This is messier than any of us wanted to be part of. Like we thought this thing was what it claimed to be. And and the LDS.org essays all by themselves show that this is not. Like the church basically says in those essays, we told you a story, and now we need to begin telling you a different story. Everything's up for grabs. And from here on out, like we need to be heard. This community no longer gets to tell our story. And if you are part of any organization that tries to shame or marginalize those who are trying to share their trauma and their story, then I say shame on you. Each one of you look in the mirror and say to yourself, do I let those who have been spiritually abused by my tribe, do I let them tell their story? Because they are hurting and they wanted nothing more than this thing to be true. So shame on you. Any time you insist on telling someone else's truth, it is never about saving souls. It is only about staying comfortable. If you are a church leader who tries to distance the membership from those who are hurting and to minimize the stories of those who are hurting, then shame on you. Because it is spiritual abuse 
not to have a safe space within the tribe that created and emerged itself into your identity to not give you space to share your truth. Sunday school is not a safe place. Priesthood is not a safe place. How, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it to create a safe space in this church? You have to stop saying gone are the days and keep doing the things you say are gone. You have to start acknowledging this is really messy. And damn it, it is reasonable for people to lose faith and to leave. They are not less than. If anything, they were more devoted They were more into this. They were more serious. They took it for its word. They took you for your word. And here's what I've noticed. And again, if I come off too critical and this is the end of my membership, so be it. But I'm telling you, I need you to hear my spiritual trauma is avoid taking the blame. And here's what I mean. What Mormonism does from the very top to the very bottom, every way in which we frame doubt, faith crises, faith deconstruction, faith transitions, every way in which we frame those within the church is that the person who lost faith is the one who is accountable. Never on any level Does anybody in church leadership say, we played a part in this? Part of this is our fault. We have to be accountable for the part we played. We are sorry. From here on out, I'm telling every single person in this church who has doubts and who is struggling with figuring out how to reconcile this shit. For every single member trying to do that, you no longer take the blame. You do not let this entity blame you. It is responsible. It has changed the story. It told you that the Book of Mormon was translated with Nephite interpreters. It told you that blacks were less valiant. It told you that handicapped kids were less valiant. It told you that you were better to come home in a coffin than to have lost any virtue on your mission. It told you that black people would be servants in the celestial kingdom. It told you that Jesus was born on April 6th. It told you not to use birth control. It told you cremation was wrong. It told you to pay tithing before you feed your children. It only told you the 1838 account and a host of other things. And there's a host of things that didn't tell you. It didn't tell you that Joseph got the facsimiles incorrect. It didn't take the time to explain to you that the Book of Abraham translation was a complete mess. It didn't tell you that the Hill Cumorah in Palmyra has nothing whatsoever in terms of archaeology or, or things that should be on or around or in that hill that are not there. It didn't own up to the fact that Brigham Young taught false doctrine about the character of God and thought he got that idea from God. It didn't tell you about seer stones and hats. It didn't tell you about Joseph's treasure digging and the far and wide extent of it. 
It didn't tell you that Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner, the young lady who gathered the Book of Commandment sheets in her dress to rescue them, that Joseph approached her when she was 12 years old and told her that she would someday be his wife and someday was. It didn't tell you in the midst of telling you that Thomas Marsh had lost his faith over milk in strippings, it failed to tell you that Lucinda Harris, the woman that Thomas Marsh's wife was having the dispute with, was sealed to Joseph secretly as his third plural wife six months before Thomas Marsh appealed to the first presidency. It didn't tell you about Fanny Elger as a 16-year-old working as a maid in the Smith home that Joseph ends up having some kind of relationship with you and whatever the apologists in the church want to conclude that relationship was, it should be noted that it didn't tell you that Oliver Cowdery thought it was a filthy, nasty scrape, or in other words, an inappropriate relationship, and that Emma thought it was a fair, an affair, and she looked in the door of the barn and only saw two people there. She says she saw Joseph and Fanny alone and saw the whole interaction. It didn't tell you about Helen Mark Kimball in, in several months shy of her 15th birthday, in other words, a 14-year-old entering a relationship with Joseph Smith. And it didn't tell you this was a complete mess. And so on some level, like, we have got to grasp as a community that it is not the individual who lost faith who is the problem. There's nothing wrong with them. And we're going to stop telling that story. And And the church... You've got to be accountable. You have to accept responsibility. Somebody in the church has got to say, we, we contributed to this. As a culture, as an institution, and as church leadership, we created this mess. Because we withheld the majority of the information from you, and strangely, that information was problematic, and we told you a simple perfectly fitting story to build your testimonies on. And unfortunately that story doesn't hold up. Or as Richard Bushman says, the dominant narrative is not true. It cannot sustain itself. Trauma has happened here. Abuse has happened here. And again, I'm not saying the church isn't true. And I'm not saying that, that leaders aren't incredible at times. And I'm not saying that, the church doesn't have keys or that it doesn't administer and guard the saving ordinances. What I am saying, though, is that we are going to stop telling the story of those whose stories we don't want to hear. It ends today. It ends now. And my encouragement is for every member who of the church who has experienced this, It is time to put your foot down. It is time to hold your truth up. Abuse has happened here. And the abuse becomes exponential when you blame those who have been traumatized and shame them for having experienced it and have no accountability even though Every single person looking at this mess realizes this is an institutional issue. Today's the day. 
From now on, my truth will be there. And the only choice you have to get rid of my truth is to get rid of me. It's done. This community is going to heal, and it's going to heal by having its voice heard. To those who have been traumatized, God bless you. You are not at fault. You prayed enough. You fasted enough. You read the Book of Mormon enough. You tried hard enough to make this work. You are not less than. You know the information, and you know if they knew the information as well as you knew the information and know the information, most of them would have bailed long ago. May the Lord warm your shoulders. Never heal.